we're going to talk about today, which is the creator economy, the direct-to-consumer model, how that's going to be changing the whole world of, of creativity and the incentives and direct distribution and what enables it and the possibilities with blockchain and NFTs. This is Fearless Media, my podcast about the future of media, entertainment, and tech. The entrepreneurs, innovators, artists, and creators boldly leading the way, all with a healthy mix of mind, body, and soul. Diverse stories from diverse voices. Hello, everybody. It's Peter Chotti, another episode of Fearless Media. And today, I have the good fortune of being able to be joined by Sebastian Park, who is a venture partner at Bitcraft Ventures, but also double duty as the founder of Infinite Canvas. So Sebastian, great to see you. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate and, you. And where are you right now? Uh, I'm I'm in New York City right now in the heart of the West Village, uh, ah. which is fun because my co-founder's in LA. And so we have a nice remote company going out here. That's awesome. I'm in Southern California. My son's in New York City at NYU Film School, so not too far away flying home tonight for the holidays. but That's lovely. So, so we're excited. But great to see you. And how this all came about, um, everybody out there, is that um, I've been getting deeper and deeper into the world of NFTs and blockchain-related opportunities in the media and entertainment space with a lot of focus on the music side. And I have my own ideas. And, and as I get deeper and deeper and deeper, one of my great resources is Scott Rupp, who is a founding partner a Bitcraft Ventures and Bitcraft is deep into the esports venture world, games venture world, and now has its own blockchain fund that it started. And that's when I was asking him about things, this kind of came up and I saw a presentation that Bitcraft had put together called the Second Renaissance. And that's what led to this because Sebastian is the man behind the plan here um, regarding, some, regarding the Second Renaissance. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today, which is the creator economy, the direct-to-consumer model, how that's going to be changing the whole world of, of creativity and the incentives and direct distribution and what enables it and the possibilities with blockchain and NFTs. So there's a lot of ground to cover. We're going to get right into it. So Sebastian, just before we get into your presentation and you're going to take it over, tell me a little bit about what Infinite Canvas is and just a little bit about your background. Yeah, sure. So Infinite Canvas is a publisher for the user-generated gaming ecosystem or the metaverse. We focus mostly on you know investing, buying, operating, publishing games on platforms like Roblox, Minecraft, Fortnite Creative, also Web3 platforms like Sandbox, Decentraland, a couple other places like that. And so we're having a ton of fun. We're a complete remote team. We make a lot of fun games and make existing games better. Is sort of the hope. And, and sort of my background leading into this was I've been in esports and gaming for about the past decade. Uh, most recently, I was the vice president of esports for the Houston Rockets, where I created uh, a team called Clutch Gaming uh, with Daryl Morey, Tab Brown, Leslie Alexander, and all those guys, and then Tillman Fertitta as well, uh, which competed in League of Legends. Then we were able to fortuitously sell it to the Harris Blitzer Group, which merged it with Dignitas back in 2019. And since then, a lot of stuff around Web3, a lot of stuff around digital memorabilia and user generation, anything. Izzy got and a venture partner at the same time. I don't know how you do it, but good for you for doing that. And just for those who aren't familiar with the term Web 3.0, can you just quickly explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting question, if only because we think a lot about Web 1 being sort of what we saw in the original dot-com boost with all the type of services and companies that came out there. I personally have seen different definitions for Web 2. I like to think of it as a combination of the social media platforms that have centralized around the internet combined with APIs. APIs are super powerful and super cool. So I think that's probably worthy of its own designation as a Web 2. Uh, Web 3 is the more decentralized in theory, although who knows what it'll look like in practice, blockchain, smart contract, composability-driven internet, uh, often grouped into Web 3 is when you have stuff like user generation, uh, be it video generation or game generation or IP generation. And that new wave of the internet where that's far more user-led and hopefully more decentralized is Web3. Got it. Okay, got it. 
Great. So let's dig right into it. Why don't you um, pull up your presentation because it's it's wonderful. And whether you guys are watching this or just listening to it as an audio podcast, uh, you're going to get a lot out of this and you're not going to need to see what's on the screen, but this will be a nice guide for Sebastian as he takes it through it. And then I'm sure I'll, I'll ask questions. Hopefully some of them will be uh, intelligent all along the way, but Sebastian, take it from here. Well, thanks, Peter. Ask as many questions as you like. I mean, the first thing to say is a lot of credit to uh, Mr. Car Carlos Brera. I'm going to misspell his, or mispronounce rather his last name, but probably won't misspell it. Carlos is a principal at Bitcraft. He's done a lot of thinking behind this, and he's absolutely great. Highly recommend following him on Twitter. He has some really cool thoughts, including how uh, blockchain Web3 is basically spreading democracy and capitalism, which I thought was sort of an interesting take. The second renaissance is a concept really drilling into the idea that direct-to-consumer monetization and the fact that creators are able to make their own things are creating new market segments and creating a lot of value for the end user. What's really cool here, and to your point, Peter, about doing a lot of different things and having a lot of different hats, the one central theme that I, I've leaned into and it's made all my jobs easier is that I'm a huge, huge believer in people making stuff. And in particular, anyday people and everyday people making stuff. Uh, we'll we'll talk more about this in a bit, but when a and this is a true story, when the son of Syrian refugees who live in Ireland can make a game because, without knowing how to code, that's a really interesting market segment. And what we've seen as these platforms that we've created, places like TikTok, YouTube, places like Roblox, places like Fortnite, Fortnite Creative, have started to expand upon the definition of who can be a creator. So it's not just you know people who are. Uh, my brother's a cinematographer. Like, it's not people who went to cinematography school or film school. It's not just writers from you know, top universities. It's, it's anyone on the internet. And these tools are allowing that to happen. And we're seeing this as a market that's, you know, at the time, I thought it was aggressively 100 billion plus. And now I'm thinking that might be a little bit conservative. Yeah. The second Renaissance term itself, coined by Jack Conte, CEO of Patreon, just wanted to like, you know, really give him credit where credit is due. But the basic idea is this really cool loop. Right. Uh, if there's a there's a great thought piece writer by the name of Kevin Kwok who's obsessed with loops, uh, highly recommend his reading about it and sort of inspired this graphic right here. But the idea that you can make stuff and before, if you look here, it ends with creator passion and that's it. But what's an interesting line that was created was that these platforms, you'd have this like vector from your passion to these platforms, and the passion, the platforms themselves would beget monetization which will allow you to spend more time focusing on your creative activities, which then allow you to like think deeply about distribution. Like This distribution allows for people to create better tools and better ways for you to create more content, which decreases the friction, which creates more creators, and thus, as a result, changes the ecosystem from a cultural standpoint to, you know, to get more monetization via ads or acquisition or otherwise. Yeah. Uh, that, that's really a second renaissance, very similar to how the first renaissance changed the, the views of art and science. And the value creation. So as you were saying, the democratization of it, not only by the hardware that, like you were talking about cinematography and anybody can make a great, can capture great quality video now through their iPhones or whatever it may be, but also just the, the ability to go direct to find an audience from anywhere in the world, as you were saying, and also to cut out the middleman monetization platform. So as an example, like the value that's created by whatever writing I do or podcasts or whatever that any of us do right now, there's the platform that hosts it that takes captures much of the value. Well, through the second Renaissance and the things we're going to be talking about, you're taking that away and you can go direct one thing. And then we'll, we'll continue on just a fun fact about Jeff Conti. So I was in the green room with Jeff back in like 2014 when we were both going to be interviewed on, I think it was Forbes or one of those shows, it might've been MSNBC. He had just started Patreon. He was a really good guy back then, but uh, like I was there like right next to greatness at the time, but um, I always loved what he was doing. So it's very cool how Patreon has really like taken off and now multi-billion dollar valued company. But anyhow, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. Completely agree with that. And that reduction of friction has been awesome because certainly there's still platforms or these newer platforms, but like we've seen with competition, competition reduces the cut, the reduces the platform cuts. And so the creators themselves make more and more of what their art is producing. Um, we've seen this in practice. This is not some arbitrary 
mental model that's only existing in academia. We've seen this happen with words. We've seen your Instagrams, your Pinterest, your Snapchats on the video side. And most recently, and we, we didn't have it in this slide deck, but you know, substacks of the world, the ghosts of the world, the fact that, and to to large extent, actually NFTs themselves, right? Like the fact that previously uncaptured economic value that was created in mass and could either only be distributed through services like the New York Times, then became ubiquitous in the past 10 years with platforms like Facebook and Instagram and Snap. What we're now seeing is the next step forward where it's like, hey, now that the process isn't or that the bottleneck isn't the content consumption or the content availability, but rather the monetization, we're starting to see that type of exponential growth both in the video and imagery and words and, and the related creative arts. And people are able to capture more and more of that value that previously may have only been captured by the New York Times and then only captured by Facebook. Yeah. So web, would you say that Web 2.0 is more the you, you have the platforms that have enabled the kind of creativity and the distribution of that creativity, but the value is still the intellectual property of the creativity. It only gets a small piece of that value because the platform itself that has built itself into multi-trillion dollar companies, they've captured the vast, you know, the vast, vast majority of the value that was created um, from the intellectual property itself. Would you say that that's correct about Web 2.0? And Web 3.0, one of the big disruptions is taking that out. So it is the direct, whoever's created the value from an intellectual property creativity standpoint, that creator is directly um, able to capture that value him or herself. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because certainly one of the biggest things I will say, and I think that's certainly a great definition for Web2, but just a little more nuance to it. I will say that you know creating that value was worth capturing for the platforms, right? Because prior to that, there you just you know speak into the ether. I fear you probably didn't have any issues with this, but for most people, if they had an opinion, they had no one to share it with, and so it would just fall into the ether. Right. And so then. Uh, that's what these platforms were able to do. And APIs, in a, in a lot of ways, the interconnectivity between these large platforms, you know, really helped integrate the world writ large. And as we move towards more mobile images and video content, what we're starting to see is that, hey, actually, now content's super ubiquitous. Everyone's just consuming and everyone's creating, which is awesome. That's, and Web3 often is both the discovery as well as the monetization of that content moving forward. Got it. Usually, this is a great time to share a David Bowie clip. This is something that I highly recommend from, um, if you guys get a chance, you can find it. Just look up old idea, new tech with David Bowie. He had a great take on the internet as that it was, that it was about subgenres, that it's becoming more niche communities, that this entire thing, this passion that we're seeing is creating its own ecosystem, its own organism. And that's something that we've seen in mass, especially as we move more and more towards the creator economy and towards Web3 and some of these new generation platforms is that you know previously you would need to, there were three channels on TV. Well, you need to hit as many people as possible or that show's not going to be remotely successful. Now we see these like, incredibly specific niches. Like I, I read uh, something that came through the internet the other day that there is a TikToker who's a Harvard Law uh, graduate, works in law firm, she has hundreds of thousands of followers for people who specifically want to get into law school. That's a very specific niche, but one that she's capturing because that passion is there for people who care about law. So that I think is something that David Bowie like really got down pat and highly recommend watching this video as to hear some insight from you know the 1990s of what today looks like. Well, and one of the things when we're talking about David Bowie, obviously, um, Bowie bonds. Bowie bonds are very relevant to what we're going to be talking about. And I'm a, a big part of what I do is in the music acquisition world of copyrights to masters and publishing. And right now, I'm sure you followed, and because everybody's seeing that billions of dollars are being poured into that space to acquire the, you know, the biggest catalogs that are out there, whether it's like Stevie Nicks or, would, or um, David Crosby or you know, Neil Young, David, uh, mm -hmm. you know, all these massive deals. And private equity is, is being the buyer there. But now, through what we're talking about in this Web 3.0 economy and through NFTs, now it's a, super fans. Um, the, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the retail market, we can buy actual pieces of the songs. So it's down to fractional interest and fractional ownership. 
where it's um, we're able to share in the value that's generated over time as well as a fractional owner in it. And that's something that David Bowie started with Bowie bonds, that concept a couple of decades ago. And so here we are. Yeah. David Bowie was ahead of his time. For he, sure. <laughs> he was very ahead of his time. Just two, two platforms that I think are worth uh, on the music side, where we're talking about songs in the marketplace uh, to be able to, you know, anybody, any of us can purchase a piece of them. You should check out Opulus, which is a new service that's from Ditto Music out of the UK. Opulus is a cool new NFT platform and DeFi platform. And then music focused. And Royal is another one that was just recently featured in TechCrunch, but Royal has some very big names behind it. But that's worth checking out. Very cool. And I, I find those platforms, especially when you allow for that type of liquidity to come in to be exactly the type of problems we're solving for right now. Just that direct to creator and then creator to fan uh, loop we see. Exactly. Uh, I, like that's it. For me, that's such an exciting part of it on the music side because super fans, they want to get close to the artists that they love. They want to support the art so they create more art. And now super fans can do that directly through the kinds of things we're talking about. For sure. And, and this is, I think, where we now should take a step back and talk about a little bit about how innovation comes stepwise, right? And so one thing that I think is, is so interesting to discuss, and I, and I talked to a few friends about this recently, was if you think about for every single person, uh, for every single BTS or Blackpink coming out of the Korean machine that we see, how many girls and boys, young girls and boys were in that system to produce the type of superstars that we're seeing now. And, and I think that's something that we, we think about a lot. If you look at the groups making money, trying to make a living, we see a lot more diversity today than there was you know, 10, 20 years ago. That's not to say the top 1% doesn't capture most of the money, right? That's still the case. The top percentiles always capture the vast amount of the followers, the vast amount of monetization, the vast amount of that content creation. What's really cool is that there are these really nice and interesting steps along the way. And so what we're seeing, especially with this next wave, is that there's a lot of, uh, we estimate it's going to be around the ballpark of 50 million people, 47 million amateurs, 3 million professionals who are working on these stuff in the world. Almost certainly that skews a little bit, that number is being a little conservative. It's probably far more creators and far fewer professionals. The professional number is very accurate. The, the, the amateur number might be a little bit too low. Uh, but certainly what we're seeing is that we see, you know, 34% of creators who are making on these platforms like Twitch and Instagram make less than 20 grand a year. Another third make 20 to 50 grand a year. And then even up to $500,000 a year, that's only 40% of it. And it's really the last bits that you're hearing about in the press are the 2% and 1% of like 500K and a million plus. Let me ask you a question just about that slide. When you're talking about creators are, are, and you estimate about around 50 million individuals. Um, what do you can, who do you consider creator there? Do you, is it somebody who is doing this as their, their primary source of, um, you know, vocation of some kind, because, you know, everybody's posting on Instagram all the time, but that's not what you're referring to. Right. Right. And it's, it's people who are, who are having the, the account for the amateurs here are specific accounts that are clearly directed as we use Signifier and influencer marketing hub. Yeah. It just gets a sense of people who are like, actively going out and asking for ad dollar spends on their accounts, CPM, CPCs and whatnot. I would hope that this isn't the primary vocation for the, for, you know, like the 50% of them, Yeah, um, that this is supplementary or that it is part of a larger idea for them. There is one of the bigger concerns right now. And I think that you'll see a lot of press about this is just the fact that there are so many people who consider themselves influencers and this is a job they want. Um, there's a fun fact that if you ask uh, any Gen Z child right now, that influencer has overtaken astronaut and firefighter as like the job they want. And so that I think is interesting, uh, but certainly means that we, it's, still a, it's still a term and model of employment. It's still very winner take all. And so I think one myth that we always like to dispel, especially for those um, especially with kids, but also people who are pursuing this type of thing is that the, the hit rates are very, still very similar to what they were before. It's just that before we didn't really see even the middle class. Now we're starting to see the inklings of a middle class. And that's the main difference still for the vast majority of people who are doing this. They're not making a lot of money. They're solving a lot of fun, but the supply is there to create these types of superstars in the, of the future. Gotcha.
So this is sort of like an interesting bit here. Uh, I, I should mention that this was created. This slide was created a few months ago, and that shouldn't matter in most ecosystems. But in this ecosystem, this does in fact matter. Uh, for those of you listening, we're talking about current platform usage in July. We're talking about Facebook, the YouTube's, the Instagrams, the TikToks of the world. TikTok has continued to grow. Snapchat's continued to grow. Facebook tends to stay fairly stable. Instagram is growing, and now we're also seeing a lot of use. You might, we might even consider Discord as one of these areas yeah. of these like social platforms today. Uh, this is, a, I would say, the biggest thing that I, I toss out to people is that we're talking about 2010, roughly $800 million of YouTube creator payout. And now it's about $10.5 billion last year. We're seeing similar amounts of growth on platforms like Roblox, where they're clearly going clear. They went from you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions in like 24 months. And that's the type of payouts that we like to see. And that's the type of growth we have where creator payouts are, are accelerating and that the creators are using these interesting platforms. Let me ask you a question about that, though, too, because on the flip side, a number of creators will say the cuts are ridiculous. So Roblox, as I understand it, and I'm certainly no expert uh, in Roblox, but takes a 75% share from games that are created uh, mm-hmm. on that platform. And when you look at YouTube, I think it's what, 60-40? So 40% is is retained by YouTube. And then we know that, you know, when you're talking about obviously using the uh, creator uses iTunes or or just the iOS platform to, mm-hmm. f- to be able to get their content out, there's a 30% share that's shared with Apple. So from a creator standpoint, Although the money has grown in the manner that you've mentioned, that's still a tiny fraction that, or many would say it's a very small fraction that should be going to the creators. And that also, that's because that's a central part of Web 3.0, as we were saying before. Yeah. So what's, what's interesting, and, and I, I love that question, actually, because it's something that I think a lot about, uh, in part because I candidly, personally stand to benefit if the cuts were lower, right? Like that, yeah. I think we all do. And, right. and so it's easy for me to beat the drum of that being the thing that we want. I, I would I would caution for people before they beat the drum a little bit too hard to spend a little bit of time thinking about where the costs are coming from and where the costs are going. One of the fun things about Web3 are gas fees, right? Like the fact that the system in and of itself is charging people for the use, right? And so what's cool there is... On one hand, it feels free. Yeah. But on the other hand, the the cut of money has been taken in other parts. And, and sure, surely it's a lot smaller than um, these YouTubes and these other platforms. But it is worth mentioning, for example, platforms like Twitch, YouTube, hosting video files, sending the videos out to everyone is an incredibly expensive process. And they do it for a lot of people. It reminds me a lot of the ANR model in a lot of ways, yeah. where you know it's really the one super hit who's funding the, the discovery of 100 different artists, right? In terms of the cost of creating the music itself. I think we're seeing very similar types of things on YouTube and Twitch and on Roblox, where Roblox's cut is in fact 75%. The question is, how much should it be? And you know, given that they're also on the iOS platform, we know they're not getting the full 30% of money that's routed through there. And, and on top of that, how much, are they, how much is the server spin up? How much are those ancillary costs? factoring into it. Uh, I certainly think they should be lower. I think we can all agree about that. I don't know where it ends, but just wanted to be uh, honest and forthwith when it comes to this discussion, because my goodness, uh, the $10 billion payout is still a lot of money. It certainly would be awesome if it was $20 billion to the creators. But in the interim, it's also awesome these platforms continue to exist. <laughs> well, so. And by the way, I appreciate that because I banged the drum pretty loudly. So that is a nice, um, you know, Gives me a little bit of uh, of uh, p- maybe pulling back a little bit and and appreciating what the platforms have enabled in the first place. But nonetheless, it does get us into the power of Web 3.0 and and the next evolution. Where yes, of course, nothing is cost free at all. But as efficiencies grow, the you know the the split and the share that's going to the creator is just it's it's a vastly different sort of game for sure. And and by the way, just this sort of a fun story from a different time, but. Uh, you know, when it was Twitch first, it's now Twitch versus YouTube, really. Yeah. But there was this like glorious time around 2017 in the live streaming space where it was like Twitch, it was Amazon versus Google versus Facebook versus, you know, potentially Netflix and definitely Microsoft. Right. And we saw so many gains in terms of developer and creator splits 
in that year with that competition. Yeah. So for those of people out there who don't think competition matters, like just look towards 2017 and just like the sheer amount of impact that Facebook Live and Mixer had on the ecosystem alongside YouTube gaming really shifted the cuts that we saw there. And then when they disappeared, like I was like, like oh crap. <laughs> and so uh, I that's one of the cooler things about Web3 for sure, especially because there are just so many players, the cuts have to be incredibly, incredibly competitive. Yeah, uh, great point. This, I think, is probably my favorite slide uh, in this deck. Basically, um, well, what, what's worth mentioning is that the early stages of monetization uh, were platform-based. And so what I mean by that is that when you had videos on YouTube, like you would pay YouTube, and then it would sponsor the videos through their programmatic real-time bidding algorithm. And they're very good at it. It's how, it's how Google has makes most of their money. And so... Uh, programmatic direct brand deals. Uh, we're talking about large scale. So the people who are making the big bucks were your Big Bang Theory product placement teams or, or Stephen Colbert and like folks like that. What's been really cool as we've seen more direct-to-consumer ecosystem mechanisms, be it the easier CPG, the consumer package good, uh, thoroughfare in terms of sort of that supply chain to lower JVs and margins and whatnot, is that we've started to see individual large creators themselves leverage their own brands outside of a construct. You don't need to necessarily sign on with Nike and become a Nike athlete to ship your own shoe now. You could, in theory, make your own shoe. You may still choose to do the larger thing, but if you want to do it yourself like Kylie Jenner did, you can do it yourself, which is crazy and awesome. So that's been the future, which we think has been pretty awesome is that direct-to-consumer marketing is uh, consumer is freaking amazing. Where now that you can like have scalable, um, in-time, just-in-time type delivery, where you don't have to keep large inventories, where you can have digital goods, be it NFTs that don't have that overhead, we're now allowing individuals to make a lot of income. <laughs> really just make it directly from their fans and not have to necessarily worry about the deltas. One way or the other. Well, and that's the point too. Yeah, again, getting back to the super fan, you know, the 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 fans, the audience supporting the creativity and um, supporting it directly by giving the value to the creator and enabling the creator to create even more. And I'm, we'll get into a little bit more about uh, you know, kind of my crossing of the chasm when I was thinking about NFTs and the media and entertainment business, and I was thinking of it in, in a more kind of generic sort of way, where yes. It's beyond just the song or the, you know, the art or, you know, the video, it can go into an experience and all that, but it can go much deeper than that. It can become more like a crypto punks or a board eight ape yacht club, which becomes a membership into a club. And I'm fascinated by what that means from a super fan perspective and the new, you know, the new type of fan club that's enabled by that, that I, I do want to ask you about a little bit later. But on this slide, for those who don't see it, um, you mentioned three different examples of direct-to-consumer that you think are interesting. And so if you could just briefly mention in the art space, gaming space, and then this other interesting example. For sure. This is certainly wrong now, and it's my mistake for not going through this. But back in July, <laughs> um, CryptoPunks had a total market cap of $5 billion. Who knows what's at right now? Maybe 10, maybe 20, maybe four. I, I don't know off the top of my head. Certainly, the billions of dollars created by two people. Uh, you have people like Anna LaRue in, on the Roblox platform. She runs one of the most lucrative digital goods stores on Roblox. Her story is awesome. She, you know, she's 20 years old and basically did all of this herself, generating hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in terms of total income for herself and for her company. And then people like Heather Fox, you know, who's a professor of American history at Boston College, who, you know, our understanding and talking to some of the data that sources that we've seen makes about $2.5 million from our Substack just in talking about American history, which is awesome. Like that is such a great, those are great stories. But more importantly, and this is, I'm going to sound hilarious, but not any of these three people are Kylie Jenner's level of huge, right? Kylie Jenner is approaching a billion Instagram followers. These people are not. Yeah. And I think that's one of the more interesting things here. Well, it's pretty fascinating. Like you said, Heather Fox, who's an American history professor at Boston College, 2.5 million through her sub stack. Um, how did, just in the gaming side with Anna Ralu, Anna Ralu. Anna Ralu. Yeah. Yes. How did she break out though? It, it's a great question. I mean, for her in particular, you know, she started when she was a teenager, like 13, 14, and started really selling and getting a sense of design and and really building her own organic following on the platform of people who really wanted 
their designs. And so um, grew that over time and then went to university and really focused on it full time and kept growing and growing and doing drops and limited releases. And just did a drop for Christmas. That's done very well as well. Interesting. It's fun stuff for sure. It is. Um, one, one thing I will say, and this, this uh, for context, for those of you who don't know, this deck was originally for the LP meetings um, for Bitcraft. And so um, in the venture world, there's a lot of fun meetings that I recommend people try to sneak into where, where you get to see these types of presentations. I got I to gotta ask uh, an acronym check, DLP. That's a great question. Where do I use DLP here? You, you, uh, it, this is a presentation for DLPs. Oh, so not um, for LPs. Oh, like LPs. For oh, okay. the, the oh, LPs, yeah. Limited partners. I was like, uh, I was, yeah. So they're limited partners, the people who are investing in these venture funds. I got you. Uh, they're, yeah. they're great. Uh, but uh, just wanted to say that, you know, basically in a six-month period, uh, we saw something in the ballpark of $800 million in venture investments into this space. Uh, we've seen far more sense, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. Uh, but places like Patreon, uh, OpenSea, Mighty Networks, Linktree, Creator Plus, Cameo, Super Rate, uh, Splice. Uh, these are some examples of companies where they're re really starting to push forward the creator economy and sort of uh, be platforms for this next generation of content and next generation of creation. Yeah, absolutely. Every day you can see that there's another major, in, in, uh, another major investment, like a massive investment going into the space for sure. It's, it's crazy stuff right now. Absolutely crazy stuff right now. Legalization is a word I really like. Uh, it's in part because I'm, I'm a fan of Legos. <laughs> uh, but basically, the idea is can you pair different parts of an ecosystem together to help you generate your own thing, right? And so an example of legalization is sort of the distribution and e-commerce side with the community side. And so just to give an example, you could be a famous TikTok celebrity. You can want to sell a physical good well, you can commission someone to make the physical good, to manage the physical good. You can then use Shopify to sell the physical good. And then you can tell people on Discord or Telegram that this good is for sale and that you want to engage on it, go to those services from TikTok, right? That's a type of really interesting stuff that's happening. And this is basically allowing creators to have additional sources of monetization and different platforms and not necessarily just be locked in to the one part of the business, be it just YouTube or just Twitch or just whatever. Fun thing here is that we start... I just wanted to uh, circle something and I'm glad we did. Uh, we saw this happen in APIs. I, I think the fact that we mentioned APIs and, and, and sort of the restful nature of them is, is important because that's what really fueled a lot of the startup SaaS, BAS, HaaS, all the as-a-service companies that we saw the past 10 years. Um, you can see there's a Forbes article from 2011. Uh, was driven by the fact that these things could be interoperable and connect with each other. And, and we see similar things here, uh, especially in Web3, where you have a lot of different really cool platforms starting to interact. People on Roblox not only play on Roblox, but they also have Discord servers where they hang out. Yeah. And then they also have uh, stores on Amazon where they can buy stuff. Really quickly on Discord, for those out there who don't aren't familiar with Discord, what, um, what's the benefit of being on that platform from a communication standpoint? Yeah, so Discord for people who are were incredibly techie back, you know, 30 years ago is basically a reskinned IRC, right? It's a place. It's a. It's if you remember AOL groups back in the 1990s. <laughs> if you remember IRC? It's a place where communities of folks can talk in real time with each other. There's also video and voice chatting optionality, but a lot of this stuff happens via text and just these like large chat rooms where people are talking to each other. And they're really cool. I mean, so what's happening is that they've allowed people to easily spin up large audiences that can interact with each other in this single chatting platform. So that's the real benefit. You can spin up a large community that's you know a pro your own private but largely sp spun up community very quickly. Exactly, and then they can talk to each other yep. in real time and so and see each the, other if they want and, to. and theoretically see each other if they want to. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Uh, this is where we sort of jump into blockchain. Uh, we, we think blockchain and crypto in particular is the infrastructure layer for a lot of these things. They're, um, our, our thinking about this continues to evolve, but really, the, I would say the composability of blockchain, especially Ethereum and some of the newer layer twos and layer ones, is awesome. They, they allow people to disintermediate the platforms themselves by using smart contracts by using these types of ecosystems in order to pay each other out. 
one of my favorite things, Peter, that you mentioned was the fact that people are fighting over uh, entire song record label collections, right? And like these entire uh, discographies, their entire libraries of music. And, and historically, the payment mechanism there that like goes to the collection, there's a bunch of lawyers on all the different sides. They're all fighting. Uh, and I, th- I think like Dean Martin's collection just got resolved after like 20 or 15 years of fighting a couple of days ago, right? Uh, in theory and in practice, at least initially, blockchain seems to allow us to ignore that, to basically allow people to have a direct connection and then use that to monetize directly as well. Yeah, and and just a couple of things I want to point out that are that I find to be fascinating is that, and in the media and entertainment space, is that um, I, I mentioned on the music side uh, because I'm involved in a lot of these large transactions that are private equity backed. Um, but the democratization of that, and for fans and collectors to be able to come in, or investors just to be able to come in and invest via platforms like Opulus and Royal and others that will be coming online into the songs themselves and taking a fractional ownership piece of them. So now you have what Web 3.0 has enabled there and uh, you know blockchain and then all the reporting and all the payments to those people. So like if I'm a micro or fractional owner of this copyright, this recording, then the blockchain enables the direct payment to me because music rights are so complex and it simplifies all of that. Like that is happening. That's a massive transformation in the music business. Similar kinds of things can be said on the video side where now you're going to, it's going to be a new source of a new source of capital for producers of film or television or whatever video project or any project. Now you're going to be able to have the audience actually be a new source of capital for you and the audience can become investors in your film. And so if for all you producers out there, really understanding that, that now you don't have to just go to your typical sources of financing, you're gonna have a new world of opportunity opened up to you. And now you who are fans of certain genres or directors or whatever, you're gonna be able to take an ownership piece in the work, which fuels more work. And if it's successful and you can help build the success, you, the audience can help build the success because you're going to share that story. You're going to tell your friends about it because you're invested in it. Like all of that is really fascinating. And for sure, one, one more, (laughs) and tell me if I'm thinking the right way, Sebastian, about this, because I love, you know, nothing's more powerful than if, if you, if you love an artist, you know, you, this, this connection through music is a very special sort of bond very special bond. You know, music plays such an important role in everybody's lives. And by the way, in all forms of media, like in games and such too. So media, music is a pretty interesting thing that way. Well, everybody, artists have had fan clubs forever and ever and ever. But I've always, uh, what I'm beginning to think more and more and spending more time with this, it's, I think that it's really fascinating, the concept of having, like bringing in a membership collectible kind of model, kind of like Board Air, Board Ape Yacht Club again, where now let's um who's one of your favorite artists sebastian musical artists oh i mean i gotta say I've, I've been really 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 partial to weezer my entire life okay so well, I'm, I'm all about weezer i was there at the <laughs> beginning weezer i loved weezer from the very beginning the, the blue album so we, let's say weezer let's say weezer just decides to create a super duper vi ultra vip nft and now it's limited to a thousand people and they're going to sell it in the marketplace to so you're one th- there's only 1000 memberships into this super duper vip weezer fan club and you know forever it's locked in at that there's a certain buy in price at that and there's certain benefits to being part of that club first of all you're a super duper vip one of only 1000 in the world so like you're a, you're the ultra weezer fan and then mm-hmm. there's all kinds of whatever other experiences that weezer wants to make available to those ultra super fans what I, I like imagine the kinds of dollars that can come with that directly to the artist, but also imagine the the great um, pride or bragging rights and special exclusive um, contact access that you have the artist. So their fans benefit from that. And then, of course, through smart contracts, everybody wins as that investment into one of a thousand. It gets more and more valuable over time, potentially. And you, the fan, if you choose to sell your membership, then you're able to 
take the gain just like any investment. And then if you're Weezer, of course, you get a continuing share every time there's a resale. So for sure, that whole idea of like this super ultra VIP velvet rope thing, um, that's almost like a collectible goes into a membership model, kind of like board ape yacht club. And, and it creates a life of its own in itself. Is is, am I thinking the right way of that? opportunity? It's it's certainly an interesting one, in part because the innovation here, and I talk about this a lot, is that it's not so abstract, right? It's not so disruptive that it doesn't make sense. It makes sense, and I think is that's the upside, right? It's very similar to the PSL model, like the private seat license model that the NFL, in particular, but yeah. also other sports organizations use. And for those of you who don't know, you basically pay a, an amount of money, sometimes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but right now maybe thousands of dollars for the right to pay the team every year for somewhere in the ballpark of seven to nine home games, um, regular season games. If your team happens to be good, the first access to the playoff games as well, right? And and there, if you are a PSL owner of, let's say, uh, the LA Rams SoFi Stadium, and you were one of the PSL owners who bought the 100,000 a pop, uh, 50-yard line, first 10 rows section, Along with that came parking. Along with that came first rights to buy tickets for the 2022 Super Bowl. There's just a lot of interesting added benefits. And in terms of mainstream appeal for for organizations like that, this is a really powerful tool because of the enforcement. So you don't have to like go spin up an entire department to maintain that, right? You can enforce it via a composable smart contract. On the complete flip side, which I think is also crazy, is that and Peter, you probably heard of this, but like uh, like Mila Kunis and and, um, you know, I think it was Chris Rock and Ashton Kutcher and Seth MacFarlane created a show called Stoner Cats, right, with with uh, Jane Fonda. And, and you know, what an absurd concept never would have been picked up by the by ABC or NBC or Fox. Right. But, you know, they funded it with a token, a Stoner Cat token, an NFT. And now it's for a very niche audience, very niche audience. And so. We see these funding models, and that's like the coolest part of Web3 is that it, it's an application not necessarily for the, the more traditional big-ticket LA Rams-level groups of people. It's also for people who just really like weed and cats, yeah, which yeah. is you know, uh, and a who, much smaller intersection, I'd imagine. And who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not saying me. I'm not saying me. The, uh, and Sebastian, I won't ask you. Oh, yeah. No, I'm actually cats and I don't get along sometimes, but I do like most cats. Yeah. Which is sort of a fun thing in that way. Yeah, I'm a dog guy. Gen's, yeah, same. Like I mentioned <laughs> before, Gen Z lists YouTube creator as a top employment. It's pretty great. Yeah. It's pretty hilarious. Okay. So, so do you think that it still makes sense for it? I don't even know if you went to college because you've been an entrepreneur forever and ever and ever, but what do you just quick aside, 30 seconds aside, what do you think in this, the way the world has evolved and creator economy and everything that we're talking about, does it still make sense to go through a traditional college education that can cost upward of a hundred thousand dollars all in annually? Yeah, I'm, I'm very biased. I, I went to Yale for undergrad, as did my co-founder. Of course uh, you and, did. <laughs> and, and, and more importantly, uh, some of my coolest friends like the, uh, I met from university. Yeah. Right? So the, one of the co-founders of Axie uh, was in my year at Yale. Like One of my um, good friends on my floor ended up you know, creating a gelato restaurant. Right? Like, there's some really cool interactions I highly recommend. Yeah. What I will say, and I think this is really important, is that at least for my generation, it was a requirement that, hey, you had to go to university. I don't think that's the case anymore. You don't have to go to university. I will say if you have an opportunity to go to NYU film school, for example, or USC film school, or, or places like Yale, Stanford, the Harvards of the world, I'd still recommend it. Um, I certainly think that if you already know what you want to do and focus on and you don't, and it's a large financial burden for you, then uh, consider other options. But the final thing I will say, and this has been the coolest thing I've seen in universities the past 10 years, is that uh, a lot of schools are moving towards financial grants, um, need-based financial grants. I think that's a great movement. We've seen it happen throughout the Ivy League. We've seen it happen throughout, I think, top 25 universities in the United States. Highly recommend that <laughs> as a model where then the, the option isn't paying $100,000 a year. If the option is you pay a few thousand dollars a year. Yeah. That's, that's definitely still valuable. Yeah. 
Thank you. Uh, that's great to know. And I appreciate that as a father whose you know, son is at NYU Film School, that it still makes sense. <laughs> yeah, for, for, uh, for him as well. I mean, I think my favorite story here is if you look at the sheer number of Harvard uh, writers in Hollywood on these comedy shows, that in of itself should be a good indication there's at least something there. <laughs> Uh, but in the for but for these guys, by the way, for the people that are pictured on this deck, we're talking about people who have made a ton of money doing what they do. Um, university is something to do if they want to make friends and lifelong connections that are outside the context or construct of their work. Yeah, and for them, absolutely, I recommend it for them if they want it. If not, keep keep hustling, keep building. Um, they're doing some really cool stuff. Look, at the end of the day, these are all different. It's just different kinds of experiences. I mean, that, and that's the point. Like being an entrepreneur and and not going the traditional path, it's just you got to know who you are. And it's a different kind of experience than going more, the more traditional route in that kind of education that we're talking about. But things are getting hybridized and and all. there's so much fascinating things coming on in terms of innovation and all of that. But Go ahead, continue on. I don't want to take any more sidetracks. For sure. I got to give full credit to um, Carlos, who used his university degree for this slide, um, which is the Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs slide. This is literally funds right through it. And this, by the way, I think is one of the benefits of university and certainly one of the funner, more fun parts of people who enjoy this type of thinking is, hey, just like applying a cross-interdisciplinary approach. One of the things that Carlos theorized, which I completely agree with, is just, hey, like, if you have a good base of physiological needs set and your safety is fine and you belong to different networks and you have great social um, mobility in those networks, suddenly you seek self-actualization. Suddenly you spend more time creating, you're, you're taken care of. You know, uh, When I graduated from university, uh, I, I need to get a job right away, right? And, and certainly I know that was the case for a lot of my friends and colleagues from, from university. Um, if that's not a requirement because there are ways for you to supplement your income, suddenly it opens up the ability to become an entrepreneur, right? And to become, um, to do a lot of things. My, one of my favorite things that uh, I, I have a chance to speak to university students and, and grad students is like, look, like uh, you, we, we don't talk enough about the fact that who you are, where you came from, and what your background and how much money you have is a large driver in the type of decisions you should be making. Like it, it's totally fine to take that corporate job and not pursue this if you have debt, right? Like that is a like not only a reasonable but an honorable thing to do, yeah, right? And so, absolutely. And, but, but if you find yourself in a situation where you you have a great background such that like there is no risk for you can always go back to the workforce. If you have a situation where um, either through uh, through your family or through your own work have like a nice like safety net of resources, hell yeah. Go, let's go go do some really cool stuff. Take the ideas that Gumroad pitches where you, you know, escape your nine to five, you end your commute, you work on your craft. That stuff is awesome. But I do want to provide a little bit of color. That is a sales pitch. It's we have pitch in quotes for a reason on this slide because it's a pitch. It's not necessarily the reality that you or anyone else is living. No, I, I amen to all of that. One of the things though that um no matter what, and by the way, for those of you who are just listening to this. Sebastian was going through, as he said, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, where it's the pyramid, if you remember, at the bottom is physiological needs and, and then safety, then belonging, then esteem, and then at the top is self-actualization. And obviously, as more needs, freedom opens up in the sense of being able to not worry about shelter and basic sorts of things, which enable, which frees you up to be able to be, um, you know, think more of those of, uh, on the self-actualization kinds of things like creativity, et cetera, et cetera. I myself challenge myself constantly because, you know, I've been around the block. I've been in the media and entertainment and tech world for 30 years. So I'm not Sebastian's age, although, you know, I would like to think I am, but I'm not. Um, but it challenged myself constantly to kind of stay ahead and experiment with the things that we're talking about. And that's one thing I advise everybody, though, whether you're a creator, whether you're a tech person, is that constantly like understanding, reading more, listening to more podcasts. Um, listening to people like Sebastian who are experts in the space and then actually trying these things, no matter what kind of, even if you're still, you're going to in that regular job because you have to, which is understandable and noble and all that. But you, there is an opportunity now to be a creator just with what you have. And the beauty of it is that you can get your messages out there. You may not find an audience, but you may find an audience. And that is something that was never before possible. And so it's all really exciting stuff. And um, Sebastian just 
so that for everybody out there, obviously you're a very smart guy who does a lot of cool things and you've done it really, really well. You're kind of setting the stage for web 3.0 and where it all evolves to. How do they follow you? Where do, where can they follow your thinking and thoughts and all that good stuff? Yeah, for sure. You could, you can follow me on Twitter at Seb Park. Um, I've been doing some writing recently on, um, uh, for a couple of publications, um, like you can find, if you go to Bitcraft, you'll see this presentation, some of the writing we have there, but Twitter is probably the best place to find me. And, um, you can also find me on my website, sebastianpark.com and shoot me an email. I, I read everything and try to respond to most things. Awesome. I, Sebastian, this was great. Um, I really appreciate it. I think it's going to be very helpful to a lot of people out there. And so thanks for joining me, everybody. You can follow me at P Chotty. That's on Twitter, P-C-S, like Sam, A-T-H-Y, um, Fearless Media Podcast. I also have a podcast on Consequence, used to be Consequence of Sound, which is major music publication called The Story Behind the Song, where I interview iconic artists like Blondie, Tears for Fears. My new ones coming out is Crowded House, Neil Finn, um, big music guy. And that's why a lot of what I was asking about, um, Sebastian, is on the, you know, in this the you know this fractional ownership the blockchain enabled music sorts of investments and, and and the super fandom and all that but for all of media and entertainment this is all stuff that you need to be really beginning to understand and appreciate how much i i think that this is going to be a massive transformation of the media and entertainment business doesn't mean that you're not going to have entities out there financing and still producing large-scale productions of all kinds, but you are going to have very different ways of films, as an example, reaching the marketplace. Uh, so it's a, it's exciting times. And thanks again, Sebastian, for everything. Thanks for having me. Good to see you. Cheers. You've been listening to Fearless Media, produced by entertainment media tech advisory firm, Creative Media, and sound engineered by Jason Ames. If you like what you've heard, download and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you find your favorite podcasts. To learn more about Fearless Media and Creative Media, visit creative.media. That's C-R-E-A-T-V dot media.